We're, uh, we're actually now today, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians since October 2021. And today is the last sermon in 2 Corinthians. Now, those of you who have been reading ahead, you might think to yourself, but wait a minute, 2 Corinthians doesn't end in chapter 11. You're right, it doesn't. We're going to stop anyway. Um, (laughs) If you want to finish the book, good news for you, your small groups are going to continue to work through chapters 12 and 13, so you are going to get the whole book. But the leadership at our church felt as we approach Easter, as we approach Holy Week, it would be appropriate for us to stop 2 Corinthians and to look at some texts that really help prepare our hearts for that highest point of the Christian year, which is Easter. Um, And this seems like a fitting place to stop as some of the themes we're going to hear today in 2 Corinthians 11 kind of sum up the book as a whole. And so without further ado, I'd invite you to turn your attention to the screen where Anna Heed is going to read our text for us. Our reading today is taken from 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 2006, one of the great mm, legendary films of my generation came out. It stars Samuel L. Jackson and focuses, are some people chuckling already? It focuses on a flight that goes from Hawaii to Los Angeles. On that flight, what makes this flight interesting? Well, in the belly of that airplane, there is a crate of venomous snakes. And the crate has a timer on it, which is set to open when they're midway over the Pacific Ocean with nowhere to land. The subtle title of this film is Snakes on a Plane. It's among the greats, you know, Sharknado, Mongolian Deathworm, snakes on a plane. Well, 
You can imagine how the director managed to stretch this thin concept into an hour and 46 minutes of content. He shows people running from snakes. He shows people fighting snakes. That's it. That's the whole film. And, uh, and near the climax of the film, Samuel Jackson stands up in the cockpit. He looks around, cocks his pistol, and this is his moment to be a hero. He shouts, enough is enough! Samuel Jackson has had enough, and he's going to take matters into his own hands to deal with those snakes on that plane. Why do I intro this way? Well, the Apostle Paul is kind of having a similar experience in this part of the letter of 2 Corinthians. Paul is looking at the church of Corinth, and you know what he sees? He sees snakes. Snakes that are tricking people. Snakes that are taking the money of the Corinthians. Snakes that are spreading lies. And snakes that are trashing Paul's reputation. And enough is enough. This is the section where Paul throws off the gloves and he addresses these people head on. And Paul's concern here is that the church in Corinth not be misled by those who, one, question the gospel of Paul, or two, question the credentials of Paul. And the main point that Paul has in this letter, the main point he had for the Corinthians then and for us today is this. Beware false gospels preached by false teachers so that you can be faithful to Christ. Beware false gospels preached by false teachers so that you can be faithful to Christ. Let's look at each of those points. So firstly, beware of false gospels so that you can be faithful. We'll be focusing here on verses 1 to 4. Paul opens this section of the letter by using a couple of illustrations. These are images he wants to use to communicate a spiritual truth to the Corinthian church. He uses the illustrations of betrothal and marriage and the illustration of Eve and the serpent. And so let's look at each of these in turn to see what Paul was communicating to the Corinthians and what he has to say to us. Firstly, betrothal and marriage. Let's look at verse 2 together. Now, when a, a couple in ancient Israel was going to be married, there were actually two ceremonies that they would go through. There was the betrothal ceremony, and then a number of months or even up to a year would pass before the wedding ceremony. And so in a sense, the betrothal ceremony in the ancient world is kind of like a modern day engagement. You know, it shows that the couple, they're committed to one another, they're committed to getting married eventually, uh, but they're not married yet. And it gives them time to prepare for the wedding day. But an ancient betrothal was actually much more binding than a modern day engagement. You see, after a betrothal in the ancient Near East, a couple couldn't just decide that they wanted to cancel the wedding. They had to get a legal certificate of divorce. They were considered legally bound to one another after the betrothal. And in fact, if unfaithfulness took place during the betrothal period, it wasn't just considered cheating, it was considered adultery. And Paul uses this image to communicate a few things to the Corinthians. He's reminded them, he says, when you were converted through my ministry, you were betrothed to Jesus Christ. You were legally bound to him. And Paul is reminding them that this betrothal period will not last forever. The wedding day is coming when Jesus returns and the church is united to him. During this time, during this sort of in-between betrothal period, Paul puts himself in the role 
of an ancient Jewish parent whose job it was to help their child remain faithful to their partner until the wedding day. And you know, it's interesting, this isn't the first instance in the Bible where uh, the Bible uses language of marriage or betrothal to speak of the relationship between God and his people. In fact, the whole Bible is peppered with this kind of language. We can think of verses like Isaiah 54 verse 5, which says, uh, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And obviously the New Testament picks up this theme in texts like the one we read this morning or elsewhere and sort of continue that marriage imagery. And so if you're here today, this morning, or you're tuning in online, and you are a baptized Christian, Paul wants you to hear this. You are betrothed to Jesus Christ. Your baptism is like an engagement ring, but even more so, you are legally bound to Jesus Christ. And this betrothal period will not last forever, even if it feels like it will. And so, remain faithful. Remain faithful in this betrothal time. I imagine there are others here today who perhaps you identify as a Christian, you believe in Jesus, but you haven't yet been baptized. And to you, I would say, get baptized. Get baptized. Be united to the body of Christ's betrothed. Be united. I imagine there's some good reasons you've been putting off the baptism. You know, we've had the pandemic for the past few years, and you want your family and friends to be able to come and see you get baptized. I understand that. We just heard that grace is opening up uh, in the first week of April. And so if you haven't been baptized yet, email joe at gracetoronto.ca. We need to get you baptized. And if you're here today or, or tuning in online and you're someone who's investigating Christianity, you're not sure what you think about faith, I would invite you to ponder, why is it that the Bible so often uses marriage imagery to speak about the relationship between God and his people? Could it be that God loves you that deeply? Could it be that God wants to know you in that level of intimacy? And what would it look like for you this week to take a step of faith towards him? So the first image that Paul uses is for the purpose of reminding the Corinthians they are betrothed to Christ, and so they're to stay faithful. And in verse 3, Paul moves on to express concern that the thoughts and the minds of the Corinthians not be led astray from their pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And in this section, Paul employs the image of Eve and the serpent. If we remember the Genesis account, God creates humanity, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, and it's a perfect existence. Humanity has a perfect harmony between humanity and God. There's perfect harmony between people, Adam and Eve. There's perfect harmony between Adam and Eve and all of creation, the land itself. It's a situation that God describes as very good. Very good. And yet, into this situation comes the serpent. And the serpent wants to attack Adam and Eve and to cause them to rebel against God. Now, the serpent does a two-pronged attack. The first prong is to question the sufficiency of God's provision for Adam and Eve. And so he says to Eve, did God really say that you must not eat of any of the trees of the garden? Now, the serpent knows he's lying because God, in fact, has prohibited Adam and Eve only from one tree alone. 
And so Eve tells the serpent that. She says, no, um, we may eat of any of the tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for then we shall die. And then the serpent employs his second tactic, which is to challenge the truthfulness of God's word. You will not surely die. And Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent, and they fall. Now, Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that Satan has not changed his playbook. He still attacks the sufficiency of God's provision, and he still attacks the truthfulness of God's word. And these attacks are most poignantly centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the ultimate provision of God, and Jesus is the embodied word of God. And so in verse 4, we see that Paul has concern that the church in Corinth is going to be led astray, that they're going to receive a false Jesus, a false spirit, and a false gospel. Now, what is it that Paul has in mind when he says a false Jesus? Um, What does that mean exactly? When I worked on staff with Power to Change, we had um, a resource that we used to engage students in conversation. It was called Perspective Cards. And so we would ask students, who do you think Jesus is? And we had these cards that we would put down that sort of explained the most common ways that people think of Jesus. So we had, you know, Jesus is a legend. He didn't actually exist historically, but the church invented him. We have this idea that Jesus was a liar. You know, he was really cunning and able to trick people into following him. Jesus was a lunatic when he said things like, before Abraham was, I am. He was someone who had delusions of grandeur. Jesus was a political revolutionary. His real concern was a political one. Jesus was a spiritual leader like Gandhi. Or Jesus was Lord. He was exactly who he says he was. And so does Paul have, you know, one of these false Jesus in mind um, as he writes to the Corinthians? Well, to be honest, it's hard to say. Because he doesn't specifically say what he means by false Jesus. But based on the context of everything we've read so far in the letter of 2 Corinthians, we can make some very educated assumptions. It seems that the Jesus that the Corinthians were tempted to believe in, it seems the gospel they were tempted to believe in, was a Jesus and a gospel that had no room for weakness, no room for suffering, no room for humiliation or death. They wanted to focus on the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the triumphal nature of Jesus, while downplaying all of his other aspects. The Corinthian church wanted to worship the resurrected Christ while pretending that the crucified Jesus didn't exist. And the Apostle Paul says, you can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. The resurrected Christ is the crucified Jesus. And if you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. Now, I wonder if the Apostle Paul were writing a letter to our church today, if he would express any concern about the Jesus whom we worship or the gospel in which we believe. Now, on the one hand, I think we do pretty well because our church holds to a historically orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. We could think about things like the Apostles' Creed, and our church believes that. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, our Lord that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come in glory to judge the living and the dead. We believe that. We would reject ancient heresies about Jesus. You know, this idea that Jesus' birth was merely human in origin. Or the idea that Jesus' resurrection was merely spiritual in nature. And so, in a certain sense, I think we have an orthodox, historical Christian faith. But... Does our gospel make room for weakness, for suffering, for humiliation, for death? Or do we, like the Corinthian church, feel that these things are somehow alien to the Christian experience? Do we think that a comfortable life is our birthright as Christians living in Toronto? You see, the way of Jesus was self-giving service. And so Paul is telling us, don't be deceived by false gospels so that you can be faithful. And this brings us to our second point. Beware false teachers so that you can be faithful. And here we're looking at verses 5 to 12. So the false teachers who have come to Corinth in Paul's absence, um, they've been spreading a false gospel. And they've also been critiquing Paul's reputation. They've been telling the Corinthians, you shouldn't listen to this guy, Paul. And they cite two reasons why they shouldn't listen to him. Firstly, they say Paul's not a very good rhetorician. He's not interesting to listen to. And secondly, and this one is a bit more strange to our ears, so we're going to have to unpack it. They say you shouldn't listen to Paul because he doesn't take money from you when he teaches. And in fact, he does menial physical labor. And that's beneath his dignity. In fact, that probably shows he doesn't even love you guys. It's kind of a confusing argument, so we're going to look at that one in just a moment. But Paul decides to address to these uh, two criticisms head on. And so in verse 6, Paul concedes the fact that the super apostles are better rhetoricians than himself. He concedes it. But he affirms that he is superior in the area of knowledge of the gospel. Essentially, in verse 6, Paul is saying, it's true, they have better style, but I have substance. And I think you Corinthians know which of those two is more important. And then in verses 7 to 12, Paul moves on to address this kind of confusing issue of money. So let's look there for a moment. I think we need some historical context here. So in the ancient Greek world, it was a common practice to have teachers or philosophers who were itinerant teachers. They would travel from town to town, and when they arrived in a town, they would set down roots for a little while, do some teaching, and during that time, they'd be supported by the community in which they were doing their teaching. This was a common practice in ancient Greece. And so when the super apostles come to Corinth, they are glad to sort of enter that role. They do some teaching, they get paid for it, and this is something that they love. By contrast, when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he didn't accept any money from the Corinthians. In fact, he chose to work as a tent maker to support himself. And when he had any lack, he actually took money from other churches, not the Corinthians. And so the Corinthians were outraged at this because they looked at Paul and said, you know, doing menial labor, this is beneath you as a wise teacher. It's humiliating. And you should be taking our money instead. 
And so they say, you must not love us if you would treat us this way. Well, Paul just said, he, he doesn't even respond to that when he says, you know, you say I don't love you. God knows I do. That's in verse 11. But regarding the money, Paul says, I'm not going to change my practice. Because the fact that Paul didn't take money from the Corinthians was one of the, the most visible and tangible ways he could show he was different than those super apostles. The super apostles claimed to work on the same terms as the apostle Paul. But by the sheer fact that Paul refused to accept money for his work was highlighting that they weren't working on the same terms at all. The super apostles came, they spread lies, and they were glad to take money for doing so. The apostle Paul came and he spoke truth and he refused to be reimbursed for that work. Now we come to verse 13 and 15, 13 to 15, where Paul really throws off the gloves regarding these super apostles. He stops mixing his words here and he says, these super apostles are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They um, disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They're servants of Satan who masquerade as servants of righteousness. Paul looks at the church and he says, there are snakes in the garden again. And what the church in Corinth needed and what the church continues to need today is a leader who could handle snakes. And thanks be to God that we have such a leader in Jesus Christ. If we think back to Eve in the garden with the serpent, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God spoke prophetically to each of the parties in the garden. He spoke to Adam, he spoke to Eve, and he spoke to the serpent. And God said to the serpent that one of Eve's descendants will crush your head. But in the process, his heel will be struck and both you and he will die in the process. Theologians call that the proto-euangelion, which means the first gospel, because we know that one of Eve's descendants, Mary, gave birth to Jesus. Jesus who grew up to be the one to crush the head of Satan at the very cost of his own life. Jesus is the leader who can handle the snake. And Jesus, unlike the super apostles, came not expecting to be compensated or to receive anything for himself. He came purely out of humble service towards others. Jesus is a leader that we can trust. He's humble. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's come for you and he's come for me. And so as we look today and we, we see these same issues of false teachers, false apostles, we can know that there is one who can handle the snakes, who has handled them, who is handling them, and who ultimately will handle them. And so Grace Toronto, I'd invite you today, fix your eyes on your betrothed. Remain faithful to him for the wedding day is coming. Amen. At this point in the service, if there are any questions, I'd be pleased to interact with them. And so Stephen has the cell phone, I believe. And um, if there are any questions texted during the sermon, I'm happy to engage with those. And if not, and questions come later, I can address them over email. My email is graham at gracetoronto.ca. Awesome. So we do have, uh, the first question is this. How can we seek to be weak and so vindicate our belief in the true gospel? Seek to be weak. 
in order to vindicate our, true, our, our belief in the true gospel. That's uh, interesting. The, the text that I'm thinking of actually comes in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians. I think it's 2 Corinthians 12 when um, Paul talks about being given a thorn in the flesh. And he actually says that, um, um, what is, do you remember the line, Stephen? It's like, when I'm weak, then I am strong. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I can, I can pull up the yeah, you exact can look it up. reference for you. Um, the image that comes to my mind when Paul talks about having a thorn in the flesh and that God's, you know what, I know what it is. It's God's okay. power is made manifest yeah. in my weakness. That's it. And in my mind, that always gives me the image of um, like a jar of clay, if you can imagine that, that's filled with a precious treasure, like a gold. And I think the cracks in that jar are the way that we can see the gold shining through. I don't think that we need to seek to create cracks in ourselves. I think all of us know areas where we are weak and the strength of the gospel can be displayed through that. So I think that's a, a personal question for each of us. Thank you. Um, the next question, I'm, I'm going to combine two of the questions into one. First is uh, this. What, are, uh, what false gospels are prevalent today that we should be vigilant against? That's the first question. Good question. Did you want to combine it with a second? Uh, second is, um, sure, give me a second. It says, um, how do you think our church should respond to other churches preaching a false gospel? Uh, for example, like the prosperity gospel. Do you think it's low-key supporting those churches if we play their worship songs at our church, like, like Bethel Church? or? Man, people always give me, the, you know, <laughs> A few months ago, I was asked to comment on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, um, all right, let's, let's look at the first one. So, false gospels. What, what are examples of false, false gospels? False gospels. Well, I think if we're going to stick with this passage, the main false gospel that Paul is talking about is a gospel that is just, as I said in the sermon, focusing on power. And so, I think for me, responding, that's like the safest answer for me to lay on, is a gospel that has no room for weakness. You know, a gospel that sees the, the way of having impact in Toronto is by, um, you know, becoming super wealthy, having the ear of important people in the city, and so on, and has no time for weakness. I was talking with a minister from um, a different denomination recently, and he was telling me that they just ordained a person who has an incredible stammer, but he's passionate to preach the gospel. And so he said, it's quite beautiful to listen to him, because sometimes it takes him a while to get his words out, but when they come out, he's preaching Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. And so, you know, do we have time for that kind of thing as a people? I think that's a good question for us to wrestle with. Um, so that would be the, the main one I would highlight for now. In terms of how do we respond to churches that preach a different gospel, I don't feel qualified to address the worship question, I'm sorry. Um, but I will say, I think the best thing that we can do is be preaching the truth here. Be teaching it in our small groups, hearing it from the front, and having our noses in the word of God. I think that's the best thing that we can do, is to continue to look at Jesus. I think about a story from the Old Testament, that talk, and I think that'll be the last question, Stephen, okay. for now. I think about a story from the Old Testament where Israel, um, they're wandering through the wilderness, and they're beset by these snakes that start attacking the people. And the way that the people can be saved is there's a serpent that's lifted up onto a pole. And they're supposed to look on that serpent and they'll be healed from the poison which they've been um, struck with. And so I think for any of us, if we're you know, worried about false gospels, we're worried about this kind of thing, look to Jesus Christ. Because the serpent on the pole is an image of Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes fixed upon him. And I think that's going to be the best advice that we can have this morning. So Stephen, I'll invite you up. Thank you, Graham. 
So at this time, what we'll be doing is uh, we'll be moving into a moment of uh, reflection, uh, joint for reflection. So would you please join me as we uh, respond with this prayer of reflection together?